0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8.
2: I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. We're talking about children's health, parenting, and education. Could Disney films help with mending childhood trauma? study out of Cambridge University says so, but what does a psychologist say? We were curious about what's happening inside the Curiosity Lab. Can you learn through loving explosions? Speaking to the co-founder. And how do you know if your child has ADHD or dyslexia? What does an assessment actually involve? We were speaking to someone who carries them out. And extracurricular activities. Are you spending all your time, all your money taxing your kids around to give them a bit of an edge at university. What are those institutions looking for? An education consultant joined us live. And Anesha Azra was named Environmental Journalist of the Year. At just 17 years old, she was sharing her passion for the planet.
0: Family Matters. On
2: Afternoons with Helen Farmer. So do you think movies are just a pleasant pastime to, you know chance to eat popcorn in the dark, it could be more meaningful for your kids. According to a recent study by Sydney Conroy, a child play therapist at Cambridge University, she's researching the impact of COVID-19 on children. She presented a paper this month at a conference at the European Psychiatric Association, claiming watching popular Disney films is a form of therapy that can help troubled children walk, can work through a trauma. She cited films like Encanto, Coco, Soul, Inside Out, saying they've got therapeutic value for children's health, especially when it comes to Encanto, interestingly, for youngsters coping with problems handed down through generations. In Narrative Matters, Encanto and Intergenerational Trauma, she recommended a greater use of what she calls cinema therapy to help children process traumatic events. Let us know your thoughts on this. Have you used films for anything more meaningful than just kicking back on the sofa? Or do you think they could be more problematic than this survey seems to suggest? Masha Valkanu is with us. She's a psychologist, psychotherapist working at Thrive Well Being She's got almost 15 years of experience working as a therapist with adults and children couples and families and I just want to start Masha, by saying thank you for your time because it feels like every psychotherapist every psychologist I speak to at the minute has got a very full calendar is it is it crazy season at the moment
3: yes for us <laughs> it's always crazy season <gasps> it's amazing. Uh, but thank you Helen for having me here i think really that mental health are very important topic and uh, uh, as much as you give us space here, I think it's very valuable well, thank you. for your listeners. I, I mean, I'm never one to sh- to shy away from, from a chat
2: about uh, about mental health. And I think especially with children, you know, so unfortunately, I'm sure a lot of people that find themselves, you know, in your clinic are people who perhaps have trauma from childhood that wasn't adequately, you know, dealt with, validated, healed at the time and at the right time. But I'd love to start before we start looking at surveys and, as, and you know, healing from, from trauma. How do you define it, Mashe? What What would you kind of put
3: under that
2: umbrella term of trauma?
3: Sure. So usually when we say trauma, we think about some catastrophic events that was not under our control, that uh, had some intensive fear involved, maybe even some life threatening situation or something that, you know, will deeply cut into our mind and stay there forever. Uh, so these are, of course, very horrible things to experience. But psychoanalytically, we we uh, have this term uh, much bro- defined much bro- broader, in terms that even some chronical. Um, negative uh, events or just some chronic chronical tension in the family, for example, can have uh, even more detrimental effect to a child's mental health. Oh, that's interesting. So, mm-hmm. so, so as you say, I can. I think of trauma and I would think of
2: maybe a natural disaster, um, you know, car crash, but also sustained neglect, you know, physical abuse, um, but perhaps it is, even if it's low level, that must kind of accumulate over time and maybe you don't even realize at the time just how much damage it's doing.
3: Yes. So uh, we can talk about more serious things like neglect and uh, abuse, which, for, of course, uh, can have Uh, You know, if the child is very small, it has also uh, the impact on complete neurological development. So from there, we have uh, a forming of character and we have uh, uh, possibilities for very deep psychological disorders, such as psychosis or such as uh, personality disorders, which are very hard to treat. Mm -hmm. So this prolonged and chronic negative um, uh, growing up circumstances, uh, uh, they are very, very dangerous for, uh, for child's growth and the growth of child's mind. Uh, on the other hand, we can have maybe uh, some more lighter, um, just negative circumstances which are more usual that will cause probably later some neurosis or some characteristics mm-hmm. uh, of personality traits that will form. Masha, can I ask you, why might two children
2: experience the same trauma and have a very different response reaction and then that might manifest very differently as they grow older.
3: Yes, that's a very interesting question. And, of course, uh, the, the answer is uh, we have um, multiple uh, multiple factors in the story. So, of course, we have uh, some uh, genetics predisposition. Then we have uh, uh, a basic mother and child relationship, which is extremely important. And that relationship is very unique, mm-hmm. and it kind of provides protection Uh, from the circumstances that can be negative later but uh, usually people come to me for example one family and say why is one child uh, this way and my own other child in the same family and we treat them similarly why they're so different. Uh, But each child has a very specific position in the family. Mm -hmm. So the first child will have completely one scope of maybe some problematic and conflict, uh, um, uh, like how to say experiences, while the other child will be just in a different position and that can make a huge difference. So the lens that they're looking at a situation,
2: perhaps as you're saying, the relationship with a parent, that attachment, And I I think also, surely it's got to be a little bit around what happens after that trauma. You know, is someone listened to? Are they validated? Is someone there actively trying to help them work through this? Or is it being brushed under the carpet and think if we don't talk about it, it's going to go away?
0: Family Matters.
2: On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking now about cinema therapy. Uh, Sidney Conroy, child play therapist at Cambridge University, presented a paper recently talking about how Disney movies in particular can, quote, help childhood trauma. Well, we are bringing in our own expert here. Masha Valkanou is a psychotherapist, a psychologist at Thrive Wellbeing Centre, and she works with adults and couples, families and children. I'm keen to get your take on this. When you saw this report, Masha, what was your initial response
3: Mm uh well uh, there are two uh, i mean it depends of what we want to say so if we want to say that uh creative content such as disney movie or a book uh can help in terms of uh, for example normal development and uh, many conflicts that uh, children are going through because we sometimes uh, have this notion that a child is innocent their life is perfect they It's complete opposite from Melanie Klein when she said like the child's suffer is much deeper. Like from then we know that children are far away from from protected from this. So if one child that has a lot of developmental tasks uh, uh, is watching, uh, for example, a Disney movie, Uh, Of course, you can uh, have many benefits, uh, such as first, maybe there will be some clever approach to the problematic. And then uh, most important, the child will not feel isolated. Mm -hmm. So they will understand that there is somebody else who is experiencing the same. So this is, I think, very uh beneficial, let's say. But if we talk about serious uh, healing deep trauma. traumas, yes. P- I'm not I so mean, sure. The deep traumas can be treated only in uh, uh, therapeutic settings and therapy is a relationship like no other relationship. So a rigorous therapeutic setting is enabling a magic of therapy to mm-hmm. happen, and only then, through wor- working transference, which, where, which you can have specifically in therapy, you can uh, go deep and heal on a very deep level. So, that would be like uh, we, we play a movie to a child, and uh, we think uh, we hope <laughs> we everything will go well, no. it will fix them. Like, how do we know that the child will not be re traumatized? Mm-hmm. Oh, how do we know that the child will not have some thoughts and feelings which uh, will go completely wrong way and they're silent and they're not sharing and you don't have uh, an expert who is in control of the situation so it's like doing a surgery in the park it's it's uh, uh, it's really dangerous I, I, think, I think it's risky
2: i totally agree i think but i do think films have a role i really do yeah. when we're talking yeah. about you know, children growing up in a, you know, a loving family home and hopefully have not suffered trauma to our knowledge and maybe neurotypical. But, you know, whether that is, you know, inside out for naming emotions. And I think Encanto is brilliant for looking at those roles within a family. You know, the so-called perfect one, the one who's carrying all the, the weight on her shoulders, Um Coco dealing with grief in Massachusetts, saying, what about the nasty characters and some mischief behaviour in Disney movies? Can these negatively affect children? I still, ha- I mean, Bambi, for one. Neela said, uh, the original Pinocchio is the cause of childhood trauma. <laughs> but I think that's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of it comes, comes to making sure what you're watching with your children. Well, first of all, you're watching it with them. And second of all, it's, it's age and maturity appropriate.
3: Yes, and uh, I mean, it's a question of are uh, uh, movie makers and uh, uh, Disney movie makers, are they aware of their responsibility? And
2: especially when you think about, I mean, I don't want to add up the number of hours my kids have watched Frozen and Frozen 2. And there is, you, when you think about the repeated messaging around some of the films. Maybe they don't realise that, you know, five-year-old girls are going to watch it 46
3: times. <laughs> yes, yes. But I think, for example, in that movie, it's brilliant. Uh, I like this detail when she meets her prince and she thinks that everything is, you know, solved and charmed and she's, you know, throwing herself back, which is very often in the movies, which I thought that it was very dangerous. I, and I agree. then the complete shift... Mm-hmm. where actually that person turns out to be dangerous and the person that she knows very well, that she grows fond to, uh, seems to. So there are some points which, which can be brilliant. And
2: Disney films have changed an awful lot. You know, when we think about historically, it was mostly, I mean, look at your kind of, you know, as you say, that damsel in distress, very typical princess trope. And now we're seeing much stronger female characters. You know, you're looking at, you know, Brave and even tangled, and I have to say, a message here saying from Jane is saying, I think Encanto and Coco are two of the best films of any genre or type I've ever seen. Not to mention Catchy. I had we don't talk about Bruno in my head for about three months, but I think what to to my mind the, the biggest takeaway from this is that films do have an impact on us and on our kids and our relationships. Should they be used to heal trauma? No, can they be used for jumping off points about emotions and situations and body changes and relationships and then yes absolutely
3: absolutely
2: Masha thank you so much for your time really thank do appreciate you, it. it's been an absolute pleasure um she is very busy but if you are looking for um assistance around mental health whether it's as a family as couples or for your child you can find Masha Valcony there at Thrive Wellbeing Centre
0: Family matters
4: on afternoons with Helen Farmer. We
2: are talking children's health, parenting, and education as ever on a Thursday afternoon, and we're we're racing towards half term. Um, but the start of a new school year is always pretty nerve wracking. People adjusting to new school timings meeting teachers for the first time. And this can be exciting, but it can also be exposing, throwing up problems for children as they start new classes, new stages. And it's often a time where differences, difficulties with academic skills or attention or focus might come to light. Some of these difficulties are significant and persistent and might impact a child's ability to keep up with their classmates and their grades. And it could be a sign of a learning difficulty, ADHD. And October is actually an awareness month for both dyslexia and ADHD. Sonia Singhal is with us today. She's from Thrive Wellbeing Center where she's a psychologist and lead assessment specialist. So we're picking her brains over the course of the afternoon. Um, Tell us a little bit Sonia about dyslexia because I feel like there were kids in my school um, who had it and then I feel like I actually don't know many adults with it for anyone that's not familiar with dyslexia can you explain what it is what's happening in the brain and, and what impact it can have
4: Thank you, Helen. Yes, so dyslexia is a learning difficulty that impacts the skills that are involved in accurate and fluent reading and is characterized by difficulties in phonological awareness, which is recognizing letter sounds, slow reading speed, and weakness in reading accuracy. Often it gets identified um, at a young age when children start to read, usually around elementary age. That kind of phonics stage. Exactly, when, when children are first starting to learn how to read. Um, but sometimes it can go unidentified for many years and can only be picked up later in adulthood.
2: That must be hugely frustrating for child and parent alike, because I'm sure when it's not picked up on, it can be written off as other things, whether it's, you know, misbehaviour, laziness. Laziness,
4: definitely. It, it can be really frustrating because the child and the parent probably recognise that there is something going on mm-hmm. and it just hasn't been correctly identified and so the child just continues to struggle in school and sometimes I work with adults at Thrive who are still struggling with it, even in adulthood and it impacts their work and, and they still haven't had an accurate diagnosis. And I'm sure
2: it must impact self-esteem as well, you know, you get these I mean we, we kind of in therapy speak you know to what limiting beliefs you know that I'm I'm not clever I'm not academic and that must be quite hard to separate and say you are intelligent you are academic but you also have dyslexia and that might be the missing piece that that diagnosis to actually help you get to where you could be or where you want to be
4: absolutely dyslexia and ADHD are not indicators of low intelligence or um, difficulties with Academic, well, sorry, difficulties with in, intellect. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it definitely can impact a child or adult's self esteem and how they feel about themselves because they're just not maybe performing up to the expectations. And it can also impact social skills because Absolutely. they feel less than uh, with their peer groups as well. Now, in terms of what's coming into Thrive, and I feel like you're kind of on the front line there looking
2: at assessments and in terms of noticing trends, numbers. When it comes to ADHD in particular, you know, we're having far more conversations about it than before, which I feel like is a really positive thing. Yes. Is this resulting in more diagnosis? Do you feel like their ADHD is on the rise or is it simply more awareness, which is then leading to, to more diagnosis?
4: I definitely think there's more awareness and what I've noticed recently or since the pandemic at Thrive is um earlier it would generally be schools that would be referring children in for assessments Mm -hmm. but now we get a lot of self referrals from adults themselves for difficulties that they're experiencing possibly due to um, working from home not having the structure at the office so there's a lot of um, procrastination there's difficulties with attention and focus so increase in self referrals for adults and also since Um, parents are now working with children at home, Mm -hmm. it's um, highlighting the struggles that the child is going through. So parents are calling in themselves um, for assessments because they're noticing the child struggling with um, just restlessness, lack of focus, with losing the structure of the classroom Mm -hmm. as well. That's really impacted children at home. I'm, I'm generally a very positive person,
2: so I'm very happy to find a positive in the pandemic. And while I absolutely hated distance learning. One thing I would say, it really helped me tune into what my older daughter in particular was enjoying, what she was struggling with. And I just felt a lot more kind of informed and empowered as a parent. And I feel like that's probably closed the gap quite a bit between us outsourcing to school,
4: if that makes sense. Definitely. I think parents, not that they weren't aware of what was going on before, but they're definitely, I think it's just made them more aware of what the whole classroom learning is all about if we're looking at
2: ADHD how do you feel like that has been misunderstood or mislabeled in the past
4: so I think most children would have been labeled as um, just misbehaving or lazy so I think it's just a misunderstanding on how it's not something that the child or adult can control it is something that is um, difficult for them to manage
2: how equipped do you think schools are now to be supporting children with in particular with ADHD
4: I think there's been a lot of progress made just for schools as well with awareness and with um, availability of resources and interventions. And I think just being able to recognize that um, they can support children, it doesn't have to be therapeutic or uh, medication, it can just be the emotional support Mm -hmm. that... um, teachers and um, special education teachers are providing at school that can really make a difference for the child as well.
1: This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8.
0: With King's College Hospital London in Dubai, bringing the best of British healthcare to the UAE.
2: If you've just tuned in, we're talking dyslexia, ADHD diagnosis and how to get an assessment more from Sonia coming up very soon from Thrive Wellbeing. But hearing now from Iman about going into the workplace as an adult with dyslexia.
1: What I found entering the workplace was it was a little bit daunting and it was a little bit nerve wracking at the beginning. I didn't necessarily want to tell my boss or my colleagues I'm dyslexic. There might be typos. There might be a mistake could you help me? But actually what I found is that very quickly the people around me sort of worked it out and would just ask me, they would say, you've got quite a lot of mistakes here. Are these because you don't have the right attention to detail or is there something else? And as soon as I said to people, oh, it's because I'm dyslexic. What I found is people straight away went, oh great, no problem. I'll happily proofread this for you. or happy happily check that for you. But obviously, I think for most dyslexic kids, they come with a million other talents. They're often very analytical, very creative, they're able to think on their feet. They really do bring a completely different skill set into the workplace. And so, what I've found is it's never actually been a hindrance for me. I've always been very open and honest, even to the point where I've been open and honest with clients about it.
2: Really encouraging to hear that. And if you want to share your story, get in touch.
0: Family Matters. On
2: Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us this Thursday afternoon. We are marking an awareness month that includes both ADHD and dyslexia. And I think for many parents, we want to do everything in our power to help our children, support them, equip them with the tools they need to learn in the best way and to socialise in the best way as well, especially in the classroom so how can we reach a diagnosis if we are seeing any concerns or red flags joining us now from thrive well-being center is psychologist and lead assessment specialist Sonia Singhal and Sonia I think for many people a diagnosis can be a huge relief and hugely liberating you know you get this action plan maybe a treatment plan in place and there's a certainly a greater level of understanding and hopefully less frustration on the part of a parent you know looking looking at their child or even themselves if it's an adult getting a dyslexia or ADHD diagnosis but I think for many people it's actually quite an intimidating idea of going into you know a medical professional's office and finding out something that perhaps you don't want to have confirmed and I just wondered if you could kind of demystify the assessment process for us.
4: Sure so it always starts with um, initial collaboration with the parents and the school to understand exactly what the concerns are and what they're seeing and what they'd like to understand better about the child. And then the kind of first testing session with the child is really about initially starting by making the child feel comfortable. And I always start by just getting to know them and um, making sure that they're comfortable. And the main purpose of an assessment is to understand their learning profile, how how they learn, what they struggle with, what they're, you know areas of strength are Um, and the process itself can be intimidating but I think um, once the child kind of gets comfortable and sees that it's it's quite interactive too and it's made or it's geared towards um, being interesting for children. Yeah. So it's on iPads there's like blocks that we use and there's different um, tasks that we do that are that are quite interactive and interesting for children. Mm
2: -hmm. What happens if a parent disagrees with an assessment?
4: That is actually more common than you would think because obviously it's there's a lot of emotions involved in this too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't want their child to be labelled and they don't want that to carry on with the child throughout their schooling and throughout the rest of their lives.
2: Sonia, can I ask you about the importance of I guess role models or people who have been open about dyslexia and ADHD is that something you've used even as a as a bit of a tool or a conversation point with kids and teenagers and, and adults as well
4: my brother actually was diagnosed with dyslexia at a young age so i have personal experience through family in that and i do sometimes share with um, children and adults that you know my brother is now the cfo of a company and he's He's very successful. There's nothing holding him back. There's nothing holding him back. said
2: on the show in the past that I've had several female friends who are about my age, you know, late 30s, early 40s, who have reached a diagnosis of ADHD recently in the last couple of, you know, months or a year. And my big kind of wow moment was thinking about women in particular and just how skilled young girls, teenagers and women become in terms of masking certain behaviors or struggles which is why a diagnosis you know for, for one friend in particular she's like i thought i was just disorganized and scatty and you know unfocused and procrastinating she's like i've got a diagnosis now and it's changed completely how i feel about myself diagnosis
4: of adhd is quite twice as common in boys than girls and generally um boys externalize the symptoms so they're much more visible whereas girls might internalize the symptoms and so often it gets missed and they're not maybe it's not highlighted as clearly it's not to
2: say it's more prevalent in boys it's just perhaps picked up on more often in boys
4: it's more i think it's more visible Mm in in maybe the classroom or at home and so it gets highlighted more but whereas a girl might have more symptoms related to kind of low mood or sadness and internalize the difficulties. And so they might not get assessed for something like ADHD, but instead just, you know, oh it's just moodiness. So with ADHD diagnosis in adulthood, is that something someone could come to you
2: to, Sonia?
4: Yes, definitely. Um, And recently since the pandemic there seems to have been an increase in self-referrals from adults who are noticing especially women who are noticing at home working from home that they're struggling with focus and concentration and procrastination Uh, they can come to thrive and and we carry out the assessment and then what can be really beneficial is that then they can really understand exactly what's going on for them and how to um get the appropriate kind of supports and get some therapeutic support to be able to help them sort out um, the difficulties they're facing and then be successful Mm -hmm. in their current lives thank you
2: so much really really interesting and hopefully we have kind of broken down any myths and misconceptions and given you something to think about. If you do have any questions or concerns, um, you can find Sonia Singhal there at Thrive Wellbeing Centre, where she's a psychologist and the lead assessment specialist. And all the very best to all of you listening today. If there are any topics that you'd like us to uncover, we'd love to hear from you on 4001.
0: Family Matters. On
2: Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're going back to school Um kind of. There's a great quote that you might have heard saying, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. Joining us now is a self-confessed nerd. He's got a passion for education, the wonders of the universe. His title is Chief Inspiration Officer and the co-founder of Curiosity Lab, Eugene Kerrigan, joining us in the studio. Not wearing your lab coat today, Eugene. How are you going? Not yet. Not yet. Ah, surprises ahead. Pop it on later. Now, I've got a little clip to hear from you. This is from one of the Curiosity Lab students.
5: Eugene has been my teacher for three years
6: now at Curiosity Lab. He has taught us many different things. Alchemy and potions. Now we're doing Mythbusters. I think Eugene is very funny. (laughs) He asks us questions, which I think are fun to answer.
2: Aw, eight-year-old Mia. (laughs) I think you're glowing with pride. Oh,
6: now, for people who
2: aren't familiar with Curiosity Lab, we're going to come on to that, but I want to talk about you first. And In your bio, you say that you left the corporate world to become a teacher, and that's when your world went from grey to technicolour. Can you tell us about that? Uh,
7: yes, yeah, so it was uh, myself and my wife, we were in London. Uh, we were both doing that central London commute. Uh, mm, fun. And uh, we were expecting our first child. Uh, and I'd... 14 years got a, got fed up with corporate we were doing similar jobs but my wife is significantly better at it than I was uh so we did a load of maths and worked it out uh and decided that I would retrain to be a primary school teacher uh with I'd, I'd had very little experience with kids at the time but I, uh, the bits I'd had I'd really enjoyed uh and it would make one of us more local and it would create that perfect idyllic kind of balance absolutely absolutely how wrong was I um <laughs> So I did I, I went off and became a primary school teacher fell in love with uh I fell in love with a particular school rather than the profession maybe uh I adored being in the classroom with the children but I found it tough mm-hmm. Uh and then we moved it was my wife's role that uh convinced us to move to Dubai where this is going to sound terrible but I didn't want to teach uh because I'd fallen in love with one particular school and it was it was kind of that or nothing mm-hmm. so I fell back into corporate uh, the
2: things go grey
7: again. They did. They did. All, all the, all the colour went out, although I did enjoy it. Um, and then through my own kids, uh, we found uh, my now business partner, uh, Mo, or Mr. Mo. Uh, and he was teaching science as Curiosity Lab, kind of out the boot of his car. Uh, <laughs> really? And I was really curious. So I, I'd been ahead head of science at the school in the UK. Uh, and I kind of went and stalked a couple of sessions, had an awkward uh, introductory conversation with him, uh, and once again, very tolerant wife, quit my job uh, and went off to see what we could do with Curiosity Lab.
2: And what you've done with it is inspire, you know, kids for years and years and years now in your classroom of sorts there in Alcos and really inspiring a love of learning through sometimes fun sometimes chaos often the odd <laughs> explosion yes. um, can you explain it's can described it as a child enrichment program mm. you, you're you're creating the scientists of tomorrow but what does that actually look like and how does it run alongside school teaching of science
7: yeah okay so uh, if we describe it as an enrichment program it does run outside of the standard curriculums uh, I mean it's a, it's a Longer and deeper conversation. I wish it wasn't enrichment. I wish it was part and parcel of mm-hmm. every child's education. Uh, but we we take full advantage of not being a school, so we take we, we're kind of unshackled. Uh, whether it come whether it comes to the curriculum, whether it comes to what we teach, certainly how we teach it, uh, and then that some of those shackles are simple things. So I'm not I, I'm not trying to create a program whereby I'm testing the children. I'm not trying to rank those children. So they they're kind of on their Independent learning journeys. Uh, and I'm not trying to get them through a test. So I'm not looking for a specific outcome. So when we create our curriculums and we create our content and our lesson plans, our kind of sole focus is conceptual understanding because mm. we think that's more powerful. We, you can apply a conceptual understanding where an outcome based can you get through this test? Can you answer those questions? Did you answer more than the kids sat next to you? Did you answer less? Uh, that I, I don't have a magic wand for the schools and I don't have an answer for that, but we certainly take advantage of not being that.
2: So what does that look like in practice then? What, what, <laughs> what kind of modules have you taught in the past or so what's happening right now that the kids are really
7: enjoying? So uh, I, think, I think in your clip from Mia, so she's doing a module, our newest module actually, it's called Mythbusters. That is inspired by a TV show called Mythbusters. Uh, but typically our modules are story led so we we create a story and a context uh that we can give the children that allows us to jump all over the place from a scientific perspective but they always understand why they're doing what they're doing or why we're doing what we're doing so MythBusters, we're kind of answering a different question every week so after here i'm running back and uh, what's today's question it is uh the, the question is can you start a fire with a bag of water uh <laughs> the story that we will the, the situation we'll put our kids in is okay we're in the desert somehow uh we need to light a fire in order to create smoke, and all we have is a coconut. Uh, can we make a fire? Uh, and we, we also, we're lucky, we find a little sandwich bag that someone had left behind. Uh, and then we use that context to teach things like uh, the fire triangle. So we're teaching the science, but we've, we've created the context that, that gives that science some meaning. So it's, we'll t- the concepts are the Fire triangle, and then we'll teach about how light travels, light waves, visible light, infrared light, heat, uh, lensing, bending light. Uh, so the science is very real, but we want them to understand it in a context that's we think is far more engaging.
2: And how do you find kids get the most out of it? Is it a case of you know coming once a week or camps? And it's, it's quite flexible in, in terms yeah. of what you can offer,
7: yeah. So I d- I mean, our course, When we, if you're asking from our perspective, the thing that we spend most of our time and energy is creating our content, which is for our programs. And that is that if you're doing one module, you'd see us once a week through term time. We then, for our camps, though, we, we do a slightly similar content or similar concept scientifically, but we, we then take advantage of having the kids for longer. So if, you, if you're coming to us once a week, you're with us for 50 minutes. If you come to our camp, you're with us for four hours. And Being frank, that gives us time to allow the children to fail. So we'll deep dive a concept, we'll set them a challenge and kind of structure it in such a way that they will fail. Mm -hmm. And then, because that's how science moves forward. Absolutely. Uh,
2: that your and hypothesis that's, uh, uh, right uh, and wrong
7: exactly so uh, and then we'll also have time to address why it failed and see what learning's there so but our core is our programs that's what
2: Brenda's asking what age good question I should have asked that Brenda That's what? a great question thanks for asking that <laughs> what age, what age do, you, do you necessarily have in mind or who are you catering for with the modules the camps and parties as well
7: so whenever we do our, our module whenever we write a module we write it three times uh, we've got our wonder program which is for children four to five years old we've got our explore program for six through eight years old and then for nine plus it's our reason program and we'll teach kids up to typically maybe 13 14 years old our camps we do run at six plus uh we would love to run a younger stream but to be honest it's logistics (laughs) uh so uh, and so we, we unfortunately at the moment we run our camps for children six plus uh so four through 14 is our is our kind of core age
2: and Sarah saying where, 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 where.
7: Where, where, where. So we are in Alcoos, in uh, Just Play in Alcoos.
2: Just opposite Tom and Serge.
7: Just opposite Drop Tom indeed. Off and, exactly go, go right. and have a, a lukewarm coffee. We have a very comfortable reception, but it's <laughs> it's not as good as theirs.
2: Eugene, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, would you mind just telling us the website for anyone that does want to learn about learning through fun and the odd bit of, well, you know, Mantos in a Coke bottle is there? Yeah, a that's in
7: there. That's in there. Um, so yes, you can you can look us up at www.curiositylab.ae, uh, or if you want to get a sort of feel for what we do, our Instagram at curiositylabdubai oh, is
2: well a worth a look.
7: Classic highlights reel.
2: Yeah, the kids the kids will absolutely. love You thank you so much. Lovely to hear a little bit more about it. And if anyone does want that website, drop me a message on 4001. I'd be very happy to connect you. And I want to know, spoiler alert, can you start a fire with a bag of water?
7: You can. It's not easy,
2: though. Pop it on your Instagram.
7: Family Matters.
2: On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking friendship this afternoon and obviously with a big focus on kids on a Thursday and having a best friend, playing with other children, going to birthday parties. For many kids, very normal, very routine activities. The American Academy of Paediatrics states that making friends is one of the most important missions of childhood, a social skill that will endure throughout their lives. But what if it isn't coming easy? What if there are struggles in making friends and keeping friends? Joining us now from Bloom World Academy is their school counsellor, Sarah Mamari. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Um, I find this a really emotive topic, to be honest, because I think no matter how so-called popular you are at school or how many friends you have, or even if you have really amazing, meaningful friendships, it is a difficult subject. I think we've all had these big and small moments of friendships being in crisis, of feeling lonely, feeling like an outsider. And when we're parents, you know, all you want to do is make those struggles go away for our children. So thank you for being with us today. Before we get to actually many questions we've had on on this topic, I'd love it if you could explain and kind of expand on what are some of the benefits of establishing new and healthy friendships, especially when we look at the the beginning of term and a lot of kids in a new class for the first time.
6: Hi, thank you for having me. Um, So uh, we all know that making friends is a vital part of growing up and an important part of a child's social and emotional development. These friendships help children build self-esteem and confidence. They also teach them important life skills. Um, Having solid friendships helps children learn how to resolve conflict and build social competence. New friendships and healthy friendships can also be empowering for children because they can provide a sense of belonging and identity which is why it also may provide a protective barrier against bullying. Mm. These children might feel like they have people around them that support and love them. So it may make it easier for them to build their resilience in a difficult situation and have the confidence to speak to an adult about how they're feeling and just really just feel like they have people next to them and be supported.
2: Sarah, can I ask, as school counsellor, what are some of the friendship worries or situations that you've had to help with in in your role?
6: Can you give us some examples? Yeah. Um, So so usually it's being worried about not having a friend or not having anybody to sit with, Um, being new, being a new student, um, usually just... We're social human beings, so we want to have people around us. And sometimes we struggle, and this is what we, we what we help with. And lots of people want to be popular, and you know, have lots of friends. And we just try our best to help make that happen, and just make sure everybody has somebody to be with. How do you do that, though? <laughs> because
2: I think you know, thinking back to. You know my kind of school years. If someone goes, Helen, you need to be friends with so and so. I'm like, oh, do I have to? But but equally, I do feel like peers have a role to play. Can you can you talk us through how a school counsellor might start to facilitate conversations or even friendships with kids that might be lonely or might be struggling?
6: Yeah, so uh, we actually start this very early in the in the year. So we have circle times um, where the counselor, the vice principal, might go into classes and talk about how important friendships are, how important it is to be kind to others, um, how what what makes a good friend, and then it's also within the curriculum of the school. Uh, we we talk a lot about social and emotional aspects, and usually role playing with kids with students and yeah helping them through what they're going through family
0: matters on
6: afternoons
2: with helen farmer and we're talking schools this afternoon specifically friendships so if this is something that your child is struggling with and i think this beginning part of term is actually a really tricky one because you've got that novelty the first week or so of a new classroom and a new teacher and then you start to get the relationship shakedowns of Who's friends with who? Who's best friends? Oh, just for the record, and I keep on meaning to flag this, (laughs) my daughter came home from school the other day with a worksheet and it was like all about me. And it was like, my favourite TV programme is this. I love doing that. Uh, My family is called and said, my best friend is. I was like, no, 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 no. This is, this is, uh, this could be a disaster. I just, I can't stand stuff like that. This kind of specialisation of having a best friend, it can just lead to so much upset amongst children. So for any teachers listening, please avoid that question. It, rarely any good comes of it. Um, we're joined now by a school counsellor, actually. Uh, Sarah, Mimami is with us today from Bloom World Academy. And I've got questions for you, Sarah, from <laughs> listeners on this. An anonymous message here, and you can absolutely get in touch and not share your name, saying many children often intentionally exclude playing with other children who are differently able. How and what can schools and parents do to help and encourage children to make friends with children who are different from them? Such a great question, a really, really important one for both parents of children who are differently able, but also parents of all children to encourage that dynamic for everybody. Sarah, what do you tend to advise in this situation for, for all?
6: Yeah, so um, uh, what we like to do is actually celebrate differences. Our um, motto at the Blue World Academy is first, best, and different. So um, the first week, we actually had Team Builder Week, um, where we had uh, lots of talks with everybody, and we also uh, did parent sessions, where we also help parents know how to deal with what's going on with their children, or how they can talk to their children about how to accept everyone and actually be the child at school that wants to include everybody, Um, We also, we also really uh, like to use role playing. So we think it's very important for kids, for children to learn uh, using, by using imaginative play to practice how to make polite conversations with others. Mm -hmm. Um, Encourage, encourage our children to actually make eye contact, use natural smiles, provide honest compliments. Um, We show our children how to handle social situations. Children really do benefit when we help them come up with concrete strategies for dealing with, for example, awkward social situations. Um, for the older children, the teenagers, we'd say uh, having role play done through uh, a way where they can improve their social skills through role activities. Ask them how to come up with uh, solutions to social crashes, debating real-life issues, um, considering different views and perspectives. Um, also, one thing that is very, very important is to know that we as adults, whether it's staff at school or parents, uh, it's important for us to know that children learn by watching and learning what we do. Yeah. So um, we, it's good to know that and use this to our benefit and theirs. <laughs> so demonstrate how and rehearse their social skills with our kids and children.
2: Sarah, a question here and again Anonymous saying, curious to see if your expert agrees that three is a tricky number for groups of girls to be friends. Our daughter is 10 and it's an emotional minefield. Speaking personally, I think three is really tricky. We try and avoid play dates of three because disaster normally unfolds. Um, I don't know if there's any data on this, but what have you seen at school, Sarah, and uh, any advice? (laughs)
6: So at school, we usually do recommend or like encourage everybody to sit in big groups, uh, just to like have everybody mixed up. And what we do is we have these uh, pathways and bellas, the activities that are across grades. So uh, where they can choose their activities and their hobbies and meet people there that have the same uh, hobbies and interests and actually meet people that are outside of their classroom Mm -hmm. so that they don't feel alone and feel like they have more people to hang around, hang out with or uh, like expand their social cycle, their circle. Um, we don't we we would we do really just recommend they stay in bigger groups and everybody be friends with everybody uh I mean you try your best I think um,
2: that's a really interesting point about having different friends in different places and for different reasons and Kind of yeah. to come back to my rant about having a best friend um, I think that can leave you quite vulnerable if you are only friends with people who are in your class you know um, I'm really grateful that my kids have got some nice friends in their class but they've also got friends that they go to gymnastics with they've got friends that they have do pirates with they've got friends that are the kids of our friends which is very helpful for us as well because yeah. it means that they tend to be entertained and <laughs> um, lastly Sarah I just wanted to ask if people are concerned i guess about starting friendships or struggling to keep friendships um for, the, for their children what is the protocol do you go to the class teacher first could you reach out to a school counselor or a school psychologist direct is there a kind of a, a best path pathway i suppose
6: Yeah. so the first thing would be to actually talk to the teacher because she or he is always there with them and they work together and then the teacher can um can refer to the counsellor or to the VPs and then we can take it from there. And some students, uh, they really just like to come into the office of the counsellor or the VP and talk about what they're going through. And of course, we do our best to help them um, with whatever they're going through.
2: Thank you. Really appreciate your time this afternoon, Sarah. All the very best to you and everyone at Bloom World Academy. And if you do have any specific questions about friendships, if this is something that's really been an issue for you or your family. We'd be very happy to expand on this with a child psychologist as well. And um, we always love hearing your stories, your experiences. We're talking about what you're talking about here on Dubai i 103.8.
0: Family Matters. On
2: Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking education this afternoon. And I'm curious, how many after-school clubs have you signed your kids up to? What have you chosen and Why? And are you going into a big pile of debt because of it? Because if so, join the club. Most crucially, how much importance is placed on extracurricular activities when students reach the age of applying to university? Do colleges look at this in application forms? Does it depend on what they're going to study? We're finding out now with Soraya Baheshti, the Regional Director at Crimson Education. And if you do have any questions on this or want to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Soraya, great to have you with us. How are you? So good to
8: be back. Always love coming on the show. Thank Thank you,
2: Helen. Thank you. I find this really interesting to think that the fact that my five-year-old might be doing something now that could ultimately, should she stick with it, be somewhat influential into the university she gets into or even shape the career path she goes down. But I'm curious how important it is. So let's say a student's going to study medicine. Do, does his or her extracurricular activities actually make a difference, especially if the student does have the grades to get in? So that box is ticked.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Well, first, we need to delineate U.S. and U.K. universities. So in the U.K., they're more interested in what we call super which are an expansion of the academics for medicine in particular, you know, medicine is a long slog. So they do want to see that you've engaged with the subject, that you understand patient care, that you understand you some aspects of being a doctor, because that's going to give them confidence that you can make it through the many, many years it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the US, you know, as the college admissions landscape continuously evolves, one rule holds true, which is that admissions officers look far beyond academics to find the best candidates. So top grades and impressive scores will get you in the door, but it's the leadership and extracurriculars and personal qualities which help you stand out. And I can even give you some stats. Yes. So for instance, at Stanford, 47,000 people applied um, in, in you know a recent uh, application cycle. You'd imagine that most of those applicants are getting carried through on the academics, but only 1,600 students were actually eliminated in that first stage where they filter out those who don't have the academics to get in, 37,000 students are eliminated at the next stage where they look at your extracurriculars, your essays and your recommendations. In other words, who you are. And it's not necessarily that these kids don't have great ones. It's just that, you know, you've got to stand out if you're aiming for those kind of universities and pretty much everyone has the same kinds of activities. Every school um, has a council or prefect, every team has a captain. So what are you really doing to stand out?
2: Now, what does count as extracurricular? What would come under that bracket, Soraya?
8: Well, so taking that Stanford example again, I've actually seen the admissions officer training documents and um, all applicants get ranked from one to six on a variety of different criteria, including like personal struggle, resilience, academics, intellectual vitality, one of them is non-academic pursuits. And they do note that things like work are, are, can be counted as extracurriculars, as well as a serious pursuit of hobbies like you know, poetry and photography. But they're looking for essentially a shorthand way to differentiate the excellent from the truly outstanding accomplishments. And they want to see time invested. So you mm. want things that you've done consistently over time. That's would it be helpful if I... Yeah. yeah. I, okay, here's,
2: here's what I want to know. I want to know the ones that, you know, would maybe get a, a gold star or a second look and ones that might get you put in the reject pile. Let's start with the goodies. <laughs>
8: Well, so there wouldn't be ones that would put you in the reject pile. It's just that you want to build upon the typical institutional activities that you might get if you're a good student at a good school. So we have a student who built an investment portfolio that's now worth one point three million dollars. He's a high school student, what? but he had entrepreneur. I know I want him to manage my money. Um, <laughs> these guys have you know entrepreneurial coaching and they have a whole support and um, for athletics, you if you want to be standing out on the athletic stage, you should probably be representing a national team Um, competitions. We run something called the PwC case competition, and it happened that it's the largest global case comp for high schoolers. But it happened that two years ago, the winning team was in the UAE, brilliant team from DIA. And each one of those winners went on to create their own companies while still in high school, but they also did internships with um, our PWC program. So like, that would be amazing. Um, we have a student in the UAE who's a UNESCO Learning Planet Youth Fellow. So really things that just are a little bit above and beyond what the average you know, good student would do.
2: I find, speaking as a parent, I find this really terrifying because it makes me think, (laughs) no, it does, honestly. And maybe that's because I'm not especially ambitious and I'm maybe not especially ambitious for my kids. I want them to be kind and well rounded. You know, I want them to have fun. I hate the thought of all of this pressure of allocating all of their time to academics. And then once yeah. you're out of school, every every bit of spare time needs to be, you know, ticking that box to get you on to the next level, like it's some kind of computer game where you're going to, you know, beat the boss at the end. And, and maybe there are listen, I'm sure there's families listening today who are going, Helen, you know, you're missing a trick here. This you' your kid's not <laughs> going to go to Harvard. I can't afford Harvard anyway, so I'm not too concerned about that. But what advice would you have for any parents who? feel like there's enough pressure on those kids' shoulders, but still want them to, you know, reach their full potential academically and in, in, in higher education.
8: I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. There's no point pushing people too much because they're not going to have the legs, you know, to last. They're going to be burnt out. The key is finding what your child is naturally interested in and then giving them the support and the resources and, and the encouragement really to explore that so it should definitely be self-led I mean the students that I mentioned were all students who innately had interests in those areas Mm -hmm. you'll be glad to know that that these universities are also looking for people to be kind I've literally heard kind mentioned on that admissions officer um training um so yeah it's it's, it's not about pushing them to where they don't want to go. It's about continuously being able to give them support where they do want to go. There are a million students who want to – I mean, a lot of students are entrepreneurial. I was certainly making all sorts of businesses to make pocket money when I was a kid. And so it's about just providing them with more encouragement, really. I, I think a lot of kids – and miss out on doing these great ideas that they have just because they think that they can't
2: mm-hmm. a couple and of questions on the text line, Sarah. um brian saying what about commitment to after school activities great point because you can have a whole long list of you know choir theater internships but if they're just for one or two weeks and that speaks to the point you made earlier Soraya, about, about it being a long-standing commitment to, yes. to these things is, is that something that's noted as well
8: Yes, and they will ask you how long you did everything, uh, so how many years, how many hours per week, and any awards or or honours you received. We like to call this being a well-lopsided candidate, so you have breadth, but then there's maybe two or three things that are clear passions for you, and you want to focus on quality over quantity. So let's say your interests are um, medicine and art. We had a student who um, tried to draw those together by actually uh, building a kind of institution or an organization that was providing art therapy to terminally ill children. So that's like a great way to, um, you know, bring those two disparate interests together. So you want to find those two to three areas, but find lots of different activities to flesh those out with. Mm -hmm. So the student maybe is also submitting an art portfolio, then maybe also doing some science or doctor shadowing. And again, I want to stress that those should be things that the student is innately and you know naturally interested in.
2: Because that comes across. If a parent's pushing someone into after school activities, into committees, internships, work, and they're not enjoying it. This isn't a passion or aligning with their values. That's going to come across if you get to interview stage. They're going to have that haunted look behind their eyes of I'm not doing yeah. this for me. I'm doing it for mum and dad.
8: Exactly. And you're right, the interviews, it does come across there. And there's also just no point, because if they're not enjoying the medicine work experience, then Mm -hmm. they're not going to enjoy medicine. So what's better as a parent to have to push your kid to med school and, and have that short term success or to have a kid who has like a an actually sustainable and enjoyable career that they're going to thrive in for a long period of time.
2: Um, Last question here. Suleiman's asking, are internships factored in and any advice for getting them? Really hot topic at the minute. Um, You mentioned their kind of workplaces. Would internships come under that?
8: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if you can go for an internship with a well-known company, that's great because the admissions officer would be familiar with it. But um, it's not worth. I mean, the student has to be able to communicate what they actually worked on. We do actually offer internship programs for high school students with, you know, like KPMG, HSBC, big, big companies like that. But even if you're relying on a personal network, just make sure the student can articulate: this is what I achieved, this is what we work on. It's also easy to see through when a student is maybe just like coming to their parents' office mm-hmm. and. Gets a title role, but is not actually able to articulate what they
2: were worth. I've seen that in adulthood as well as teens. Um, thank <laughs> you so much. All right, really interesting. Um, you offer education consultancy, so a bit of a, a handhold and a guide through application processes and talking about options and you know accessing dream universities, whatever that might be. Um, for anyone that does want to reach out and avail of some advice, um, and for those who question, we couldn't get to today. Um, website. Let me give a little Google. It is. CrimsonEducation.org. They're here in the UAE as well. So do get in touch if there's anything that you'd like to explore on this topic. And if you want that website, get in touch.
0: Family Matters.
1: On Afternoons with Helen Farmer.
2: They say the children are the future and many very concerned about climate change. One student so passionate about it, she was named Environmental Journalist of the Year By a UK online newspaper. Tanesha Azara is just 17 years old, studies at GEMS Cambridge International School, and joins us now. I mean, Tanesha, I think I just need to say, first of all, congratulations. Thank you for joining us. How are you today?
5: Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited and I just got home from school actually. Yay, so yeah. thank you. What a nice end of the day.
2: I should have asked for you to join us a little bit earlier so you could get out of school a bit earlier, but thank you for making the time. I really do appreciate it. So you're 17 years old. Tell us a little bit about where this interest, this passion for the planet first came from. Can you pinpoint it?
5: Right, so firstly, I think I come from a very privileged place where I have access to education firstly And I come from Indonesia and the place where I'm from Jakarta, which is the capital city, it's currently facing the crisis of sea level rise. And it's one of the fastest sinking islands in the world. So firstly, that being, you know, firsthand witness of the event, that brought a lot of awareness to me. And that led to my research about how the infrastructure of my hometown is actually really poorly designed and is, you know, leaving us doomed for sea level rise. Also, that angers a lot of, you know, anger in me. And being in an international environment where we have a lot of discussions about these kind of things, I'm also studying A-level geography. So that's one of the key things that led me to research about climate change. Also, our school, GEMS Cambridge, gave the opportunity uh, for me to attend the Abu Dhabi climate meeting back in 2019. So I was able to see uh, Antonio Guterres speak about this issue as well from the United
2: Nations. So this is all coming together in terms of education and a passion and and compassion as well, as you say, for people back home. Um, And as I started by saying, congratulations on this accolade, environmental journalist of the year. Tell us, how did you hear about the competition? And I want to know, what did you write and why?
5: Right. So I heard about the competition from my lovely English teacher. Her name is Mrs. Kirk. And she actually told us about the competition back in early 2022, when it was February, I think. And I decided to write about how Jakarta is sinking again, which opened my eye on the perspective on climate change. So it's only right for me to spread the message because personally, I haven't seen a lot of stories about it. Mm. And it baffles me that not a lot of people know it because me being surrounded with people my age and they don't know a lot about it. so. I felt that it was my right to just um, spread the message, of course, being factual as well, but also spreading my feelings about it, which is obviously, you know, there's uncertainty there. There's also passion. And also, it could be positive as well, because there's a lot of solutions that can be, you know, put in place. But, yeah. I think
2: that speaking from the heart is what really connects with people. You can do a report with all the data in the world and you can talk about the factual side, but unless you're delivering that with you know, a real sense of hope and solutions you mentioned there and care. That's how you get other people to care. That's how you inspire change, I think. And it sounds like your piece has done exactly that. Um, now, this is a bit of a leading question, but, you know, what what are your views about older generations um, about our concerns or lack of concerns for the planet? Have you observed anything that you'd like to highlight?
5: Yes, actually, I first observed this kind of generational gap, you can say, um, back in 2019, when the Greta Thunberg movement started to pick up its pace. It was called the Friday for Feature, where students actually got out of school um, to protest uh, against climate change. And what really baffled me was that some adults thought that we just used it as an excuse to get out of school, which is actually the opposite, because if we don't do anything against climate change, these education opportunities are only going to be Taken away from us, mm-hmm. and we need more of the education as part of mitigating and also adapting to the problem. Mm-hmm. So, I also did my own research and found out that, um, particularly in the United States, there was a really big um, gap in opinion when it comes to age, because um, people under forty, um, when they supported a, the policy for climate change, it was only seven eight percent, but people who are like a bit older, as in like sixty two. Um, percent of them were over age 65 so even that little difference it really spoke to me um because well i also have to have empathy for them because they don't have the same education that i did because they grew up the 60s and
2: 20s, right? I think there's been, you know, you're saying generation gap, and I feel like you're right. There's been a huge backlash against Greta Thunberg, and a lot of that is from um, a a group I think most people would agree is male, pale and stale. And it's become a kind of an us versus them. And what it really needs to be is an an us together, you know, about being a kind of collaborative approach. And, you know, often the youth having the ideas, but older generations having the resources and the means to put those ideas into place. Um, what about the UAE? Tanesha, sure have, have you observed anything in terms of climate change and the impact it's having closer to home?
5: That is a very good question because um, obviously climate change it affects my home country, but where I live now in Abu Dhabi and of course the whole of the UAE, um, UAE is also going to face um, some negative impacts of climate change. And I have seen, actually, um, Earth.org, they created a forecast of what the UAE would look like um, in the year 2100 if we don't do anything against sea level rise, which is one of the main impacts of climate change. And it's super duper scary because in coastal areas, specifically where I live, um, the sea level could have risen by two meters or even three meters, which is really scary. And it may not sound like a lot to people, but they are so many important infrastructures that are built here that will be completely hammered by this mm-hmm. like desalinization and a lot of housing there'll be a lot of displacement of course that goes on and we can already experience how hot it was back in the summer That's it was right. or even above that and that we were like already complaining so much about <laughs> that so imagine like if we don't do anything and it just keeps getting worse we would have to move out
2: Dinesha, Obviously. thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your passion and lastly what on the on the back of this accolade and continuing your interest um in the environment is this something you want to do for a job are you looking at this as a career or at the minute is it a bit of a an interest on the side for now
5: you know i would love for it to be incorporated into my job as well i'm going to university next year and i'm studying business so I'm really interested to study um, that sustainability aspect of business and mm-hmm. corporate um, sustainability. So hopefully with my knowledge, I can spread the message more and make sure that businesses um, take the right steps towards being carbon neutral.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much. Please come back with that knowledge and share it with us. All the very best. And congratulations again, uh, Danesha Azara, 17 years old and named Environmental Journalist of the Year. She's right here in the UAE.